Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Revelation in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication, and to eat uh, food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great uh, distress, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some called the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my Father, To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The word of the Lord for us today. Um, Just to say at the beginning of this, that I will not get to cover every little detail in this this particular passage. There's more things here than, uh, than we have time to kind of dive into, but we'll get to a lot of them. So, um... Put that away. We can talk about it later if you have other questions. But we've been going through the book of Revelation, and we've said that this is a work that is um, prophetic in nature, and that it's apocalyptic, which just means to reveal. Um, and, and so it is Jesus revealing things about the church and, and how the church should live and act in the world. And a lot of people have the habit of reading this book or asking other people, expecting other people to read this book as a book of doom and gloom. Um, it, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of fear that might go into reading this book, and they made movies and wrote books and sold millions and millions of copies, but the reality is that this book is a book of hope and a book of encouragement. That while it describes some pretty, thing, pr- pretty crazy things in vivid language, as our passage has today, um, that wasn't necessarily meant to be taken literally, uh, but to describe kind of present and future realities for the church. Uh, the church in which Revelation, to which Revelation is written is generally one of uh, hardship and persecution. Um, and so a lot of that is already there, but it's also, um, so it's hope in the midst of that persecution. Uh, but it's also encouragement, uh, as we noted in previous weeks, uh, that the one who is really in charge of the world, uh, the one who has true authority and true power is the one who created it. 
that, that even though death is a, a reality in the present day, and even death because of faithfulness is a reality, uh, that, that Jesus says in one of the letters that, that we will not be harmed in the second death. Uh, that because of what Jesus has done, he has conquered sin and the death that it produces and has raised from the dead never to die again. And he invites us to join with him in, in relationship and in, in participation in God's mission in the world. Well, he writes to seven different churches, and I forget which number this one, maybe three or four? It's four? Four, yeah. Uh, I, I'm kind of, I'm working on the other ones, so I get, I get mixed up as far as uh, where we're at in this, and, and I'm afraid that some of my preparation for early ones have leaked into prior sermons so that when we get there, I've already said it, but uh, that's my problem, not yours. Well, the, uh, the letter to, well, here, here we go. We have this map from last week. These are the seven churches um, we started with Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, even that says Pergamos. Thyatira is where we are right now, and that's how we're saying it. My son Nate thought that I should pronounce it different every single time I said it, which I might inadvertently do. Um, uh, we have Sardis, which will be next week, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, and so those are, those are the, the churches. That's modern-day Turkey. Uh, off to the right here is where... Israel is, and to that way is Greece and Italy. Um, so just to, to orient you where you are right there. Well, Jesus begins this letter as um, he has to the rest of them. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Tara, write, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Now, I, I think um, th- this is one of the first times that... that uh, Jesus uses imagery that isn't necessarily at the very beginning of the letter that we, or of the, the book of Revelation that we, we looked at. And it might be odd um, that he uses the phrase son of God. Now, uh, here's, here's where some context helps. Uh, we might say that yes, we know that Jesus is the son of God because we've had 2,000 plus years of Christian history that has confessed that fact. Um, it's kind of weird to talk about God, Jesus as the Son of God because it's all one God, one God, three persons. Anyway, we'll get into Trinity sometime other. Um, uh, but to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that is not something that is unusual to us, right? Uh, we might say every Christian knows that that's what, what Jesus is, what, that's who Jesus is. And there's a really, really good chance that the church in Thyatira also knew Jesus as the Son of God. But as we'll, as we'll discover as we go on, um, they may have needed a little bit of a reminder as to what exactly that means uh, for them in their context in the day. Um, we, we've said uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, that part of the political and economic and social infrastructure of the day were these trade guilds. Uh, and that, that you, you've participated in these trade guilds, uh, whatever your trade was. Um, one of the ones that were important in Thyatira was bronze, hence kind of the bronze reference in the opening there. Um, but you participated in these guilds so you could have an avenue to, to become better at your, your trade and to make contacts, and, and you participated in them socially so that you could have, uh, you know, kind of climb the social ladder if you, if you could. Uh, and these 
guilds had meetings. We've said this before, and a lot of times these meetings uh, were bound up in, in worship too. Each guild had its own patron god. Um, sometimes they had the same ones, but uh, their meetings would involve times of worship and eating, and, and eating uh, meat that had been sacrificed to the, to the god that this guild uh, worshipped. It also generally uh, included a bunch of drunken revelry. Um, uh, one commentator I read said that the, the parties were in the vein of what happens in trade guild meetings stay in trade guild meetings. So uh, take Vegas and multiply it uh, with all of the, the fun debauchery, okay? Which, by the way, is a hard word to spell. Uh, Anyway, so they, 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 were, they would do these things. And part of what, uh, the, one of the a popular patron god in Thyatira was the god Apollos. Uh, and the thing that made Apollos special is that they thought that the emperor at the time uh, was the incarnation of Apollos. So they were simultaneously worshiping this god Apollos and the emperor at the same time. And, and we've said this as well, too, that, that worship of the kind of the goddess Roma, the, the god of, of Rome, and the Roman Empire, and, and the Caesars was, was all kind of wrapped up in what you did to participate in civic life. And so worship and politics and economics and your social standing all came together. And if you didn't participate in these gatherings, well, then you might be labeled uh, a subversive someone who wasn't friendly to, uh, to the empire, and maybe some of your friends turned you in, and maybe then you got killed. So uh, that's kind of the, the thing. But Apollos was known as uh, son of God or son of Zeus, son of the high God. And uh, so if, we're, if they're thinking that the emperor at the time is Apollos incarnated, then, then the emperor is son of God, or son of the most high God. Uh, So I think Jesus begins this letter this way to remind them who it is that the Son of God truly is. This is, is, if we had to boil down these letters, if we had to boil down the book of Revelation to a simple fact, it would be that Jesus is God of everything. That he is the one who created everything and he he holds it together, and he's the one who's healing it and bringing it back together in restoration. And that everything else that claims authority and power in this world is a fake, a fraud. It is a sham. It is a, it is a poor replication of the poor power and the glory and the grandeur of Jesus Christ, the Son of God the one who died and come back from sin and who's coming again to make the world right again. Uh, so he's reminding them. Well, well, we'll read this. Helpful. The political alliance heightened the risk of persons who tried to opt out of the Greco-Roman cult, cultic infrastructure. Rejection of the gods implied resistance to the state. And uh, they're, they're not so tolerant then as maybe we are now. He goes on, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. I know that your last works were greater than the first. He, he uh, hypes, hopes, 
piles on, I slow down, a little bit of praise here, right? He's saying, you have engaged in my work in the world in good ways. Uh, you are loving and faithful and patient. Uh, maybe not faithful. Uh, but you are doing some of the things that you are supposed to do. It's kind of the opposite of the church in Ephesus, anyway. Uh, he goes on, and, and, and as with most things that are good, like we hear a good thing, and like if we're paranoid, paranoid people, we might uh, expect to hear a but, right? I love you, but. Uh, not that I would ever say that to my wife, right? I'm really glad I didn't say what, I, what like the rest of that was. And uh, She is perfect and beautiful in every way. She's shaking her head. Are, you don't agree? <laughs> I'm open for lunch invitations. Uh, oh, no. All right, so <laughs> Jesus goes on and he says, uh, well, okay, that's not where I want to go. Sorry. I know your works, your love, your faith, your patience. But he says... But he says, you worship the woman named Jezebel. Uh, and uh, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my service to practice fornication and eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh, that's a pretty big but, right? Uh, you're good, you're nice, you're loving, you have good faith, but you're letting this other woman lead you astray. Now, there's, there's important things, um, as with last week with Balaam, right? There's probably not someone in the congregation in the church that day named Jezebel. Uh, but it is likely someone who has infiltrated the church and begun to entice the followers of Jesus to, to do things that they aren't supposed to do. Uh, for a little context, here we go. The first Jezebel was immortalized as the manipulative foreign wife of the Israelite king Ahab. So we'll go back into the Old Testament. Ahab was a king of, of Israel. He was not a good one. Uh, the queen used her influence to prop up her native Baal cult, discredit and destroy the prophets of Yahweh, that's God, and to lead the people, uh, lead the people idolatrously astray. The rival woman prophet of Thyatira was correspondingly influential. Uh, so there we go. This, this woman is... Uh, is calling God's people to have kind of their cake and eat it too. Uh, to say that you can be good and right and faithful and do all these churchy things, but then you can also participate in these trade guild meetings with their wild parties and idol worship. Uh, it's also probably likely that she was teaching a form of Gnosticism, which... Uh, which says that the, the spirit or your soul is what's really, really good and your body is not good at all. And that your spirit is just working to be free of this terrible thing that we call the body. And this is more Plato than it is Jesus. Okay, actually it's all Plato and no Jesus. Uh, and the only way that you could get this freedom for your soul was to, to gain some deep and secret knowledge. Uh, that you had to, to work hard and you had to be part of the special club uh, and maybe do a few things that, that eventually you would receive this revelation from, from God and your soul would be free and then it really didn't matter what you would do necessarily 
with your body. Your soul is good. Your body is bad. You don't need it. You can abuse it. You can abuse other people's bodies too, for that matter. Uh, so that's probably what, what she is, is teaching here. But that's not really the issue. Like the, I, I'm, cons- I'm convinced that uh, what Jesus is trying to communicate is not necessarily about eating food sacrificed to idols or sexual immorality. While, while those things are important and we don't necessarily want to do those, although the whole eating meat sacrificed to idols is kind of not our thing. Um, I, I think it's more about it's more about understanding and following people's teachings. I think one of the things that's important about this particular passage is that we see that, that, the, that the threat to the church is not coming from the outside. That the threat is coming from the inside. It's someone who has is, who is established themselves as an authority, as a teacher, uh, and the church has embraced that and, and they are being led astray. Uh, I think the church then and now is often led astray not, not by outside voices, but by insiders who claim for themselves positions of authority based on knowledge or insight they claim to have received straight from God. There is no communal discernment. There is no uh, accountability. I think this leads me to a really, really important point. And, and I realize that like you have called me to be your kind of biblical, spiritual authority, right? But I don't ask you just to trust me outright, like that I receive these things all by myself. I, I try, I try to allow you to invite you into our discernment, into reading scripture together to figure out what it is that God is calling us to do and who God is calling us to be. I think there's four things that are really, really important when we look at scripture and we look at maybe what other people within the church, maybe not our church, but the church universal, uh, might be teaching. Uh, there's four things. There's scripture, right? Uh, we have to look at every piece of scripture uh, within a couple of different contexts. One, we've got to look at the, the, the piece of scripture in the context of the passage in which it is found. So we can't just look at uh, this letter to the church in Thyatira, and divorce it from everything else that's happening in the whole section with the letters to the churches. We can't divorce it from what's happening in the whole book of Revelation because it's all meant to fit together. Uh, We can't divorce it from the entire narrative of Scripture from, from Genesis all the way down to the last verse in Exodus, or not Exodus, Revelation. Uh, we, we have to look at it within, within its context. Now, um, we, we maybe haven't always done this. I think we like to cherry-pick verses and make them mean what they, they want, we want them to mean. Like, for instance, uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. That's written to a people who are about to go into exile. <laughs> like, they're on the precipice of a really, really dark time. That's not like... I know that you, um, yeah, you're going to get this job and it's going to make you rich. That's not what the verse says. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Uh, yes, all things being faithful to Jesus. Like all things in worship and faithfulness and walking in a Christ-like life. Now there's a shirt out there that says, and, and I think you all need to buy me it. 
it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. It might be a mug too, right? Uh, and I think, I think that's sometimes our, our mode of operation. We cherry pick what we want. And we make it mean what we want without looking at it within the context of all of scripture. Uh, the second thing is we need to look at what we read and what we believe in, in the context of Christian tradition. That for over 2,000 years, believers in Christ have gathered together to, to read scripture together, uh, to discern it, to, to hear what God is saying to them. And, and we've come up with what is scripture and what does it mean to actually believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and what it means to be the church. And so when we, we think about um, not just the whole of Christian tradition, but our, our own specific little stream that we swim in, the Wesleyan tradition, uh, we have to say, it, we have to ask, is how we're reading this passage, is it, is it consistent with what Christians have said before? If it's not, are, are we reading more faithfully or is our tradition read more faithfully? Because sometimes, sometimes tradition gets it wrong. But that's why we need four things. Uh, so no one can just come in and say, uh, you know, who cares about 2,000 years of how the church has read this passage? I have the only right way. Third thing, reason. Does it make sense? Uh, now, now this is a tricky one because I don't think, uh, I don't think the Bible always makes sense to us. Uh, Paul says that the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Uh, that sometimes the things that Christ calls us to, they're not reasonable, or at least we don't think so. Uh, but we have to say, does this make sense in the light of where we've read it in Scripture and how the church has read it uh, before? Does it, does it make sense? logical sense? Or are we jumping to conclusions and making it say what we want it to say? Fourth thing is our experience or how we have witnessed God working in the past. I can stand here and tell you that God is faithful, that God provides um, because I have experienced that in my own life. I can, I can stand here and say that because I have seen God's faithfulness in a lot of your lives and how God has loved you and drawn you into relationship and, and rescued you from things and helping you to grow. So we have to look in light of scripture and tradition and reason and experience. Reason and experience are, in, in my mind, I put this list in hierarchy, Right? So scripture and tradition, those other two are, are secondary. I don't think that this is what the church in Thyatira was doing. I, I think they, they weren't looking, obviously their tradition is a little less long than ours is. But they were allowing someone to come in or someone to rise up within them and say, you can believe this and you can act this way without testing it against various things and just accepting the word as they go. Uh, the second, and we've kind of touched on this, the, the imagery of fornication and adultery, well, that's commonly used in the Old Testament. Uh, go home and read the book of Hosea. Uh, it, is all, it, it is all about um, an image of our unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness to God. 
So when we read this, especially in this, in this context, uh, Jesus is saying to them, by listening to this, this woman named Jezebel, you have been unfaithful in the same way that Israel was unfaithful in the Old Testament. So God calls us to, to being more faithful. Uh, we'll go on a little bit. And uh, verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. So this is one of the things I kind of meditated on a little bit this week. I hear there's this woman who's leading God's church astray, who, who's being deceptive, and, and what we hear about her first is how God has given her time to repent. Uh, we had a discussion about like how long that is, and I, I don't know how long that was. But I think this points to something about the nature of who God is that is faithful and patient and kind and, and longing not to punish but to give forgiveness when we turn. That we can say no a whole lot of times. I'm not saying that you should say no a whole lot of times. But that the patience with which God deals with us is significant. Tangentially, I think that the patience that God deals with us should be a, well, it should be an example for our patience with others. Certainly don't stay in an abusive relationship. But be patient and forgive and call towards repentance. Well, um, we'll go a little bit farther here because I think I'm getting long. Uh, Verse 24. Uh, But to the rest of you in Thyatara who do not hold hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any burden, any other burden. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works in the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod. Now, um, I I think that this is a rough quotation from Psalm 2. And and I think our English translations don't necessarily get it right. I think when when we read it on the surface, we we look and we say, okay, if we remain faithful, then we'll get to set up our own Christian nation and be able to tell the rest of the world how it is they should live in, in, in faithfulness and morality. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, the word for rule is actually more, more better translated shepherd. Shepherd. So the verse could, could go like this. I will give authority over the world's people, world's people, to shepherd them with an iron rod. I think this, this flips the image. I think it's subtle just a little bit, but it's, it's not, I'm going to take my, I'm going to smash you, but I'm going to do what a shepherd does, and I'm going to guide you. Uh, maybe we read this in light of Psalm 23, besides still waters and in green pastures, and uh, through the valley of the shadow of death. That what Jesus is saying here, I think, that if you are faithful, 
if you, if you test those who teach you, if you try not to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church at the same time, uh, that, it, that you will conquer and you will be faithful, and then you will get to be used as a significant part of God's work in the world. That we are not Christian just for our own sake. But that we are Christian for the sake of those around us. Not to beat them over the head, not to rule them, but to shepherd them. To call them to faithfulness. To lead them in paths of righteousness. To help them to grow and become the people God has created them to become in the first place. I, uh, I think... I think part of what was happening in Thyatira, I think I've said it right, maybe I know. I I think that they were, like I said, they were trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Uh, They were trying to to have everything that they used to have and still be faithful to God. But at the end of the day, they, they, they gave themselves to the idols that were Apollos and the emperor it was the dollar, not for them, and social status. That maybe they were so committed to those things that they lost a little bit of what it was that they were supposed to be witnessing to, pointing to Christ and his, his goodness and his faithfulness. I think the question, I think the question we need to ask um, what are the things that we do that prevent us from participating in God's mission in the world? What idols have we elevated? What gods do we serve that ruin our ability to confess that Jesus Christ is God and Lord and that might draw people into a relationship with Christ? that might shepherd them that way, but that really when everyone else sees it, they say, if that's the church, then I don't want anything to do with it. I wonder how much the church today, and I think I'm talking generically and for us too, how much we are like the church in Thyatara. Do we blindly follow teachers who tell us what we want to hear? Have we become convinced that even though we know activity or practice is steeped in political or economic idolatry, that it's acceptable to participate in it without consequence? Do we believe that as long as we believe the right thing, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies or with the bodies of others? Have our political and economic stances deeply hurt our ability to faithfully proclaim God's good news and to participate in God's mission of reconciliation and the restoration of creation and people? I, these, are, these are deep questions, and they're hard. But I, I'm convinced that the way that we handle these questions, the answers that we give to those questions, 
will significantly alter the way in which we are able to point people to Jesus Christ. That the, the church's ability to be a light in the darkness, to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness and love in the name of Jesus Christ, has always been connected to the idols we are tempted to serve or our ability to reject those idols, rather. Does that make sense? That we are called to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. That money is not. That social status and prestige is not. That America is not. Or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, or whatever your political flavor is. But to, to stand firm and to confess that in the midst of all of those things that are shouting for me to worship them, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I do so for the sake of my own salvation, but for the sake of the salvation of the world. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.